I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Andy Rowe Show. Clint Emerson is the only Navy SEAL ever inducted into the International Spy Museum. You're going to hear stories about tracking Bin Laden's boats to undercover off-the-grid lone wolf operations. Often described as a real-life Jason Bourne, Emerson's mission parameters were find, fix and finish, and of course, leave no trace. I hope you enjoy the episode. It's holiday season and that means that there are stockings to be filled and this week's episode sponsor Manscaped has gone global with the tools to guarantee a very Merry Christmas. Manscaped is the leader in men's below the waist grooming and they've served more than 4 million men worldwide. That's almost 8 million balls. Manscaped's best-selling product is the Performance Package 4.0, which is at the top of every man's wish list this year. Small enough to fit in a stocking, big enough to change a man's life. Whether this is for you, your partner, dad, brother, friend, get them something that they will actually use and is almost guaranteed to get a laugh. Get 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com with the code ARS20. Be the ballsiest gift giver this year with Manscaped. You know how important it is to keep your immune system as strong as possible, particularly coming into the cold and flu season. The guys over at Suns are always looking out for ways to help you with your health, and they've done it again with their new Ultimate Immune Health Supplement. Its special ingredient is the beta-glucan Wellmune, clinically proven in 12 scientific trials. One trial in marathon runners led to a 40% reduction in respiratory infections. Another study showed a 71% reduction in the number of individuals reporting cold and flu symptoms. So if you're already taking a multivitamin or are looking for something to strengthen your immune system this autumn, then check out suns.co.uk and use the code ANDY30 to get a massive 30 quid off your first order. And importantly, by using our code, you'll be supporting the podcast and the work we do. Clint Emerson, thank you very much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, buddy. Nice to meet you. You too, you too. You actually grew up in Saudi Arabia, didn't you? I did. My dad worked for an oil company, Aramco, which is the Arabian American company. And it's really where uh, the Saudis hired Westerners to come pull the oil out of their peninsula because they didn't know how. It was established in the 50s. Yeah, I grew up over there from the second grade all the way to high school. And what was that like for a Westerner growing up in that environment, a young fella? Yeah, it's a little bit of a love-hate relationship I have with that history and that culture. I mean, as a kid growing up on an American compound, because they had these oases that they built for, you know, that were specifically for Aramco employee families, right? So, you know, it's desert all the way until you hit a barbed wire fence where often you wondered, wait a minute, is this to keep the bad guys out or to keep us in? As you live there long enough, you realize it's to keep you in because they don't want you leaving without them knowing. Right. The fence line had, you know, maybe two or three points of entry and exit were guarded by, you know, Saudi police. And then once you're inside, it's green grass and palm trees and Olympic sized swimming pools. And so there was a lot of like, aspects that were luxurious just like Saudis kind of do everything but the culture in itself was kind of like the flip side to it where you know my mom and dad are treated like crap and you witness these moments where the hierarchy of man man is on top right man is at the top of the basically nothing is greater than a Muslim man and as a kid seeing it you start to go huh it's kind of strange, you know, because uh, it's not like women come in second. There's just men and then everybody else is <laughs> doesn't matter, you know, so yeah, I call it a hierarchy, but it isn't. It's just Saudi men is all that matters. And, uh, you know, you live in a great place 
but you're dealing with a kind of a, a, a different culture, you could say. And as a young kid, how were you treated? Like with the Saudi men, did they look down on you or they treat you normally? Or what was the situation for you? There was different moments where, you know, they they would look to take advantage of you or look to, you know, exploit you because you're a Westerner in some form or fashion. You know, try to get us to do stuff so that then they could focus on the father figures, right? The father figures in that culture are responsible for the family's actions, right? So that piece was definitely put on the Westerners. So like I had a friend that the whole family went to Amsterdam and came back. The daughter, who was probably 13, 14, I don't remember her age, but she took marijuana, was wrapped in foil that she got while she was in Amsterdam, and she put it in the coat pocket of her mom's jacket. That jacket was then in the suitcase. And so when you go through customs in Saudi, they literally open up your suitcase and they dump it on a floor. And then these guys with sticks will start just moving everything around on the floor kind of without touching it, right? And the foil came out of the pocket of oh, the God. jacket. Right. And so then they, they pick it up, they open it up. Immediately, the father was fired and then they were deported and you know, he was basically put in jail until all the you know, deportation paperwork and everything went through. I mean, this was in the 80s and it was very extreme. But also, once you got into the 90s, a little bit of that Western philosophy started to kick in over there because they realized they've either got to join in and loosen up a little bit or they're going to get left behind, you know. Didn't you start to, as a young kid over there, start to develop some skills that you would later use when you became a Navy SEAL? <laughs> yeah, I mean, over there, it was easy to be a troublemaker because there was nothing else to do, right? They had they had a BMX track made out of asphalt, you know, so if you know anything about BMX, you know, falling on asphalt isn't exactly, you know, cool. It'll graze a knee. Yeah, yeah. Most most tracks are made out of dirt or something that gives. <laughs> yeah. So, and not to mention it was blazing hot. I mean, like asphalt in the no matter what time of year over there, you can crack an egg on it and it's going to fry, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They had a youth center. They called it the youth center and it had like some video games and stuff, old school stuff, Pac-Man, asteroids, track and field, you know. But you do that for a month, you're bored. And now all that's left is to run around and cause trouble. So operating, I, if, I, if I say operating against the Saudis at a young age made me a little better operating, you know, when I got older. But yeah, we would dress up and ninjas were a big deal in the 80s, right? So my favorite movie back then was Revenge of the Ninja. Ooh. And I bought an authentic ninja uniform the gi and all that stuff that came with it the ninja tabby shoes and the balaclava everything that you know and we would run around and uh terrorize whatever saudis we could at that age with our ninja Jesus. suits <laughs> <laughs> it didn't always work out to our favor there was one night when we got surrounded by a bunch of 20 year old saudi men and they uh they beat the crap out of us with their sandals right they got those hard ass sandals they wear and what they do is they don't hit with like the flat. They use the edge, the edge of the sandal, which is this really hard leather. And it, it's almost like getting hit with a stick. It's so hard, right? Yeah. So they beat us down until we're in the fetal position. And then I remember one specific time they had like thumbtacks and they would push thumbtacks into our back like needles. Oh, one of my best friends was Canadian. We get back to his house and we take off our shirts and yeah, we each had like thumbtacks stuck in our back in the middle of all that. It's like crazy. But, you know, and these are men doing it to what well, we were, you know, whatever. We're boys, you know, 10, 11 years old. That's some aggressive shit right there. That's like putting thumbtacks <laughs> into someone's back, a 10-year-old boy's back. <laughs> D did you get them back? Yeah, in some form or fashion, I'm sure we did. We would, uh, you know, the only Saudis that were allowed to live on these American compounds were the hierarchy of the company, right? The families who were running the show. Right. So we knew where they lived. You know, it's horrible to say this, but it's true that, you know, the Saudis in most of the Middle East, they're not dog people like us in the United States. Like dogs are everything here. Mm. Over there, it's cats, like cats. And it's in, in how they're tied to 
Middle Eastern history centuries and centuries ago, you know, when you look at like Egyptian history, there's cats, right? They worship these things in some weird way. And so, you know, we knew that, okay, to get it to them is all about the cats. And so we grabbed our baseball bats and anything else we could find and, and go through and take out their cats, which would say that I'm a psychopath or, a, you know, going to grow up to be a serial killer, but I wasn't doing it to kill the cat. I was doing it to mess with those uh, Saudis. So in retrospect, it was a horrible thing to do, but it was like, you know, low hanging fruit on the target list that we could do at that age and affect those, uh, those grown ass adults that uh, decide to beat up kids. And you were young and you were still developing into a, what would become a psychopathic <laughs> yeah. Navy SEAL later in life anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I catch a lot of shit for that cat portion, but it really wasn't about the cat. It was just a, a vector to get to those, mm. those people that beat the crap out of us. So and it was driven by immature, childish anger, you know, than anything else. But you grow up and you kind of look back at that stuff and it's embarrassing, but you also learn from those moments too, you know, so. Yeah, that kind of upbringing, do you think that helped you when you finally got to SEAL training, to BUDS, when you had to try and go through all the sort of the hardships of SEAL training? Yeah, I think it probably played a role because you're dealing with very uh, sometimes dangerous situations in training. Other times it's just unpredictable, but it's always miserable, right? And so having a little bit of that sprinkled into my childhood, you know, certainly you know, makes you a, uh, a more hard-headed individual later on in life, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, I bet. We spoke to your mate, Mike Ritland, on the show a couple of weeks ago, maybe last month, oh, yeah. actually. Uh, and he talked to, us, talked to us all about buds and about the SEAL training. So we can kind of, we can kind of skip over that a little bit. And yeah. uh, what we didn't talk to him about was uh, the initiation, which you, is quite interesting in your book. Are you able to tell us about that and about what stage of your training that was at? Is it called hazing? Yeah, hazing. Hazing is a practice that has openly gone away. Now, it may be still going on, but I don't know, right? In my mind, it's reserved for two things. Either a correction measure, right? You use it to put somebody in check and basically hit the reset button. Or you use it in celebration, like it's their birthday or they're getting married. And basically a hazing session is apprehending one of your teammates without them knowing, like, you know, leverage the uh, element of surprise. You ambush them. Usually we use duct tape or, you know, tape them all up. It usually means we take all their clothes off first so that they're butt naked. And then we just basically torture them in some deviant, variant ways. You know, sometimes it's uh, you pour Tabasco sauce down their pee hole. Oh, you know, God. Their urethra. Sometimes you're, uh, you know, the, the, the rat traps and mouse traps that are just glue and they get stuck in it. Oh, yeah, that brutal. So we would take those with the live mice or the live rats and then just stick them to their face. You know oh, what I mean? Oh, so you've got you've got the rat and or the mouse, whatever's on there, freaking out already because it can't get its little feet out of the glue. And then that little mouse that's freaking out is then freaking out next to your face. <laughs> so it was always different and very creative, depending on the person you hazed and the environment you're in and what you had readily available. Like, okay, what can we grab and you know do to this person? So for me. You're at the SEAL team, you get into your first SEAL platoon, and it's usually, if you're the new guy, you're guaranteed to get hazed at some point. And that's like, welcome to the brotherhood, mm. right? And so we were out at a shooting school, and me and one of the other new guys were cleaning our weapons after a day of shooting. And we're cleaning these things, and we kind of look, look up and look around and realize we're the only ones left cleaning our weapons. And just as we noticed, the rest of the platoon came storming in just like they were assaulting a target. They had their flight suits on, their balaclavas on. So they look like a bunch of ninjas as well. They come in, take us by surprise. Before you know it, we're both butt naked. And then they taped us into the 69 position. And so my face and my nose was literally jammed between my buddy's balls and his butthole, right? 
And then his fate was <laughs> jammed into the, into the corresponding parts of my body and then taped into those positions. They probably used, I don't know, 10 rolls of duct tape to pull this off because we're, we also, of course, fight. You fight the best you can. And then there's a point when you're just not going to win, right? They're done, yeah. Then they, you know, use some spray glue and spray glue us and then throw dirt all over us and some other stuff. I can't remember, but the, the big one was they took the mini blasting machine. And a mini blasting machine is a hand cranked explosive, basically detonation device. And you basically, it sits in the palm of your hand and you wind it. And that generates enough of a charge that when you push the button, it sends the charge down the line and then blows up whatever explosives you have on the, on the other end. Now, if you take the ends, it just has two wires, right? So they took the leads and taped them to my ass. And then they took another mini blasting machine with leads on it and taped it to his ass, okay? And remember, we're in the 69 position with our faces shoved in each other's asses. You're vulnerable. Then you hear the wind, right? And when they hit the button, that charge of electricity then makes your ass flex. So our faces are basically getting clamped like this every time they die. <laughs> so your buddy's ass is clamping down on my face. So anyway, it's a memorable moment. Your initial hazing, no matter how much it sucks, you welcome it because if it never happens to you in our world, that just simply means they don't give a shit about you, right? When you're welcomed and you're liked and you are officially part of the team and your peers know that, all right, you are good to go, then you're going to get a good hazing. And then when it's all said and done, you shake hands, you hug it out. Everybody's happy. You're, you wash your face. You wash your face. You're butt naked. You put some clothes on. You drink a beer together and it's like, welcome to the brotherhood. Once you're in with the SEALs, you're in the team, or you're already in the SEALs, but once you're in with the team after the hazing, you go off on your first mission um, to the Middle East in 98, wasn't it? Was there much going on back then? Because that's pre-9-11 in the war on terror. So, the, What's crazy is back then, the mission that you would do in a year, I mean, like maybe one or two cool things you would do in an entire year. And then after 9-11... You were doing something cool every night. Really? <laughs> you know what I mean? Big, big contracts. But typically, special operations pre 9 11, you know, you would train for a specific mission for, you know, an extended period of time. And then you would go conduct it and then come back. And you might not get to go do a real world event for another six months or a year, right? Pre 9 11, it was hit and miss. But I got lucky with uh, some of my deployments because I was in the Middle East. Um, where we were doing what's called BBSS, Vessel Board Search and Seizure, which is really, you're a pirate, right? You're a pirate, though, representing good, not evil. There was a lot of ships coming out of Iraq carrying goods that were part of an embargo. You know, we're talking weapons and all kinds of stuff mm. that he was pushing out to the world. And so our job was to identify which ships those were, because usually they were the ones coming out in the middle of the night with zero lights on. So you would see them on radar, but you wouldn't see them right there in the, in the darkest ocean, right? You would just, wouldn't, or you might, you might hear them, but usually you don't even hear them. And so you'd see them on radar, you'd look up, you wouldn't see them anywhere nearby. So then you would just follow their, follow their radar, get in close. And once you get close enough, then you could see these big, massive cargo ship completely blacked out. And then we would climb up the side of these things while they're moving in the ocean, get on board, and then make our way to the bridge where the captain of the boat is and basically storm the bridge, put a gun to their head and tell them that basically this is our ship now. And then we would guide that ship back into neutral water and turn it over to NATO forces. But it was probably one of the coolest ops you could ever do because you're on jet boats, you're hanging out in the water, you're waiting for these, you know, these big vessels to come out. And uh, then you would board them, you'd confirm that they had illegal goods on board, and then you would turn it over and then you get back on your jet boats and do it all over again. And 
there was one deployment where we, that was our deployment. We just did that the whole time. And it was uh, super cool. Wasn't there a story where they just welded themselves into when you guys got on the thing, they were just like, no, we're not turning around. And then you're stuck right. with all your weapons and they're like, we know you're not going to shoot us. <laughs> yeah. So over the years, they knew like what our rules of engagement were. And, you know, they start to figure out how we were getting on board because for a long time for them, it was a mystery. We just show up. They don't hear our boats. They don't see our boats. You know, we're just as invisible as they are in the middle of the night, in the middle of an ocean. So once they started putting obstacles, they would weld posts around the entire deck of the ship. And then they would run barbed wire around the ship so that if we tried to climb up, we would just run into this fence of thorns, you know? Smart. So then we had, we, then we, we'd have to switch our tactics and then we'd basically come in with helicopters, right? So they'd be out there and then we'd just come out of nowhere and then almost not land, but get close enough to where either we could jump out of the helo or we would fast rope onto the deck and take it down. And then that's when they started basically putting up gates in front of their stairwells because then they're like, okay, well now we got to, how do we get them from getting to the bridge? So that all of their, all of your ladders and stairwells would be gates with like padlocks on them, <laughs> you know, and then we'd have to cut the padlocks and go up and, and then eventually it got to the point where, yes, they were like barricading themselves into the bridge. And then we would have to break the windows and go in through the windows and stuff. But there was one instance that I talk about in the right kind of crazy where and, and the people running the ships, they're all genuinely good people just trying to earn a buck. Right. And we're not there to hurt them. We're there just to, you know, enforce the embargo. And uh, it was these Russian dudes. And so we get into the we, we, we enter the uh, bridge. They didn't speak English. And here we are, you know, full full kit. Right. You got the hood on. They can't see our face. You know, you've got your your helmet and you got night vision and you've got these guns and you, you look, you know, you look intimidating. You look like stormtroopers. Yeah. And we, we get, we enter and we're like, you know, get on the fucking ground. And these do do these two guys just look at us like, no. And that's the only word they knew was no <laughs> with a Russian accent. And then we're like, you gotta be kidding me. So we had to sling our weapons and like fight these big monsters and get them to the ground so that we could, you know, uh, restrain them long enough so we could, you know, move the boat towards NATO forces. But uh, yeah, it was, it was, there was a time there and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I bet, I bet. All, all the fun that a Navy SEAL is looking for. Then 9-11 happens. What's your immediate reaction? Because, you know, you're at war essentially straight away then, aren't you? Yeah, nine, everyone here in the U.S., I think globally knows exactly where they were. You know, I had just driven across the Coronado Bridge when I got a call saying, hey, you know, the U.S. is under attack. I'm like, what are you talking about? It just sounded odd to me. Then when I pulled into SEAL Team 3 and go across the quarter deck, and on the quarter deck, they had an old television sitting there. And just as I walk up, there's some other guys standing around it. The second plane went into the second tower. And then at that point, you realize, oh, we are at war. There's something definitely nefarious going on here. This isn't just accidents with, you know, some air traffic controllers mm. drunk that day. This is like a full-on attack, and it's very creative, very sophisticated. So SEAL Team 3 being the team that focused solely on the Middle East, I think we pushed out two platoons to Afghanistan within a month, maybe maybe less. I don't remember, but, but our SEAL team was literally one of the first in Afghanistan to start doing clearances of caves, right? Because that was like, you know, that was the intelligence then was that, you know, all the bad guys live in caves over there. I remember so. <laughs> that. I remember that. Yeah. Osama's hiding yeah. in a cave. You'll never find him. And then right. at that point, no one really, most people didn't really know what Afghanistan was like. And you'd think, well, there can't be that many caves that he could be hiding in surely. We'll get him shortly. But yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like this weird you know all of a sudden you're uh you're humping in the mountains and and it's crazy terrain i didn't go to afghanistan till later in my career but the guys i know that went were just like holy shit you know we weren't not at all ready for that the seal teams at that point still trained mostly in we're going to put everything on our back and when we're going to go 10 clicks and then we're going to hit a target and then we're going to go 10 clicks out 
and then leave, right? So mobility and helicopters, we had a familiarization with them, but it wasn't until those moments you realize, oh, wait a minute, familiarization is not enough. We need like mm-hmm. full-time assets to be part of our mission. And so very quickly, Naval Special Warfare started spending money on vehicles and air assets and in a relatively short period of time, all of a sudden, you know, we've got armored up Humvees and side-by-sides and motorcycles and everything you can think of that had never been there prior to 9-11. We had some dune buggies. They were called DPVs, Desert Patrol Vehicles, and they sucked. Like once we, once we took them to Iraq and they, we took them off the helicopter, backed off the helicopter, the helicopter landed in like marshy, wet sand. And this is a dune buggy right? This is a desert patrol vehicle. Yeah. And as soon as it backed off the helicopter, it sank and then got stuck and couldn't go anywhere. Oh, <laughs> the no way. Took off. And so we were stuck with these. If one thing special operations is good at is adapting, right? You start adapting and you go, wait, we need to travel lighter. We need to travel faster, you know, because we had these vehicles at first loaded down with a month's worth of food and tons of ammo and explosives and all this stuff because you didn't know when you were going to come back home and and what was defined as home right what are we coming back to once you once you start a war like Mm -hmm. it's not like you know you had those forward operating bases or any kind of base available right you're just kind of like well we'll pack everything we got and we'll see what happens But the problem is, is you pack everything you've got onto one of these vehicles and then it gets stuck and now you're just stuck. (laughs) With a whole lot of gear. Yeah, there was a lot of lessons learned that first year or two. And then, you know, we got obviously got it figured out and had a a great run uh, and great successes. Knowing that Bin Laden was from Saudi and you grew up in Saudi, how was was that for you? Because a lot of people kind of overlook where Bin Laden's from. No, I don't. I, I, I never forget. Not one day goes by that I don't think about the fact that the Saudis really are our biggest enemy we've ever had that we've never done anything about. It's annoying that so many governments are suckered in to Saudi money and they end up in the back pocket of so many countries and they do it really well because you never really know about it. You don't hear about it. Um, every every now and then, you know, there'll be a little bit of hate mail out there about the Saudis because, oh, they supported, you know, the butchering of a journalist at a Saudi uh, consulate or, you know, the Saudis uh, were responsible for a lot of different things over the mm. years. About. But the big one is obviously 9-11. There is a paper trail of funding that's been proven by the FBI and others, and everyone's scared to release it. And, and I'm not a conspiracy guy. I mean, the facts are the facts. And, you know, they, they, they get away with just about everything and no one holds them accountable. And if you try to hold them accountable, then it seems to go nowhere, right? Because they, they live and run by their own rules. Um, and I would say it's not, you know, I don't carry that thought towards the Saudi people, but the royalty for sure. What most people don't know is that the Saudi people and the root of terror in Saudi and where it all began was because they didn't like the relationship that the Royal family had with the West. And so terrorism was a way of kind of fighting back. And then that of course extended outside their borders to Westerners and Western targets. When Barack Obama announced that you guys had got him, how <laughs> awesome would that was that for like to be a part of the SEALs during that time? You must've felt like a hero just, by association at least it was pretty cool not not because not because the seal teams did it but more because it just had gone on way too long so you know a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of lives went towards finding that dipshit you know and so 10 years or you know of cat and mouse with the pakistanis uh, certainly didn't help what most people don't know is like in order to get to bin Laden, you knew that you had to get to Al-Qaeda. In order to get to Al-Qaeda, you knew you had to get to the to the Taliban. Mm. And then the big layer that no one says out loud, in order to get to the Taliban, you had to go through the Pakistanis, right? <laughs> so the invisible force field around the whole thing was Pakistan. And uh, 
you know, whether it was financing or them sharing intelligence with the Taliban. I mean, there is countless moments and cable traffic that lay out how much of an obstacle the damn Pakistanis were to the whole thing. We probably could have gotten, you know, could have gotten bin Laden and, you know, concluded all that stuff a lot sooner. But, you know, you don't find out everything until it's too late sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. With a bit of hindsight. We mentioned Obama just before. You met him at one point through unfortunate circumstances, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, it was a very moving moment, and um, I don't, I don't go down the path of like political parties. Most guys who've been in the military long enough just don't. I mean, I personally don't care, right? Because your life in the military, at an individual level, really doesn't change all that much based on the president, right? And especially for SEALs, like whether they're Democrats or Republicans, they use their special operations, right? And Obama is a perfect example of a guy who used special operations and predators more than any other president. I mean, he leveraged it and used it and killed a lot of people, um, which is not something you associate to Democrats here in America. Mm. During a bunch of these operations that we had going in Afghanistan, we had a, a helicopter go down, Extortion 17, where we lost a bunch of buddies. And when those bodies were arriving at Dover, you know, one of the families I was responsible for, so getting the wife and the kids and everybody there in a timely manner, they were flying in for it. And it's like a silent ceremony when the bodies come off the back of a C-17 each one has the American flag draped over it, the steel coffins, and then they're carried and then transported away. And usually they're carried in front of the president, the vice president, you know, Department of Defense, you know, everybody was there for this one because it was the, the biggest loss that Naval Special Warfare had ever had in one shot, literally one RPG shot took down Extortion 17. And so the family that I had, they, uh, one of their flights got delayed. In fact, it was stuck on stuck on the runway in DC. And because there was lightning or something in the area, they, they were waiting before they could take off. And so they're texting me all this. And uh, I'm like, oh my God, you know, this kid's dad's body is about to, you know, pass in front of the president and everybody and the other families. Like, you know, I just needed to get them there. And so, you know, I started texting everybody I knew to try and get that plane off the ground. Uh, FBI contact, my FBI buddies contacted, you know, our TSA, TSA then contacted the tower and then said, you know, let that plane go. And so it took off. It landed in uh, Philly, which is the closest major airport to Dover. When they landed, the FBI, my FBI buddies had, uh, you know, basically golf carts waiting at the gate. They put the family on there. They raced them to a set of blacked out Suburbans, blacked out Suburbans. They got in, they get on the highway. And it was super cool. The Philadelphia State Highway Patrol set up this wedge of police cars with their lights on. And then the two Suburbans right there in the wedge, right? So if you were to look down, it would look like this flying arrow, you know, awesome. led by cops with their lights on going 120 miles an hour down the highway and just clearing everything out of the way. And then when they hit the, uh, the Delaware state border, the Delaware state troopers took over, right. Just to get this family there in time. And I was standing uh, at Obama's limousine as they approached and the family got out and everything. And I was like, look, you know, you miss your dad's arrival, but you know, I'm going to take you into this back room and, uh, and just stand by. I'm going to see if I can get something worked out. And as soon as I put them in the room and I turned around, Obama was standing there. You know, I was like, hey, sir, you know, this is the, uh, the family of the fallen. And I named them. And as I started to leave, you know, Obama was pretty much like, no, you know, Clint, you can stay. And so I stayed and he uh, he sat down and he let that family crown his shoulder for solid 20 minutes. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but 20 minutes of a U.S. president's time one on one like that is a lot. It was moving. It was it was really cool to see it. And like I said, it doesn't matter if it's a Republican or a Democrat. None of that matters. What I saw was just a human being being compassionate, and sympathetic for for a family who just had a huge loss. And it was 
it was really cool. And it was one of a couple of times meeting with Obama that I would say showcased, you know, his personality and, you know, who he really was as a human. Well, an amazing story and an amazing story to be part of. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you came back to the States, you were invited to join a new program. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I always try to compare it. When you read the book, you'll see that it's heavily redacted. Massively, yeah. Yeah, it's been blacked out in all different areas. But the best way to describe it is, you know, it was a program that would emulate the Jedberg teams of World War II. And the Jedbergs were really cool. They were like this hybrid coalition team of one, one Brit, one American, and one Frenchman. And uh, then they would jump in to behind enemy lines. And then they would put on, you know, the same clothes that the villagers were wearing. They would blend in in the Nazi, you know, occupied territory territories, and then go around and just cause trouble, you know, blow up bridges and sabotage. And I mean, all the stuff that you you dream about doing it as a kid and what you really think of like special operations, right? You think of that kind of stuff, you know? Kind of like Inglourious Bastards. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great example. And that was, you know, um, almost a Jedberg team in itself, but they would also, you know, train the resistance and put them to work as well, um, just basically disrupting anything Nazi related. And so I always tell people, it's kind of like a modern version of that, you know, where you're working in, small teams, if not by yourself, and really going after the enemy in very, very creative ways. And it was uh, super cool. And one of those experiences that not many guys get to uh, take, take part in. Yeah, you, were, you were sent to Djibouti, weren't you? And you were, weren't you tracking down Bin Laden's boats? There was, uh, been, well, most people don't know that Bin Laden had a, uh, they had a fleet of vessels in uh, about 20, 20 plus, 27, give or take, maybe 33. I don't know. I get my numbers mixed up, but they had a lot of boats, yeah. a lot of ships. Big ships. Yeah. There was big, small, I mean, they were all big, just varying, you know, compared to what an average person thinks of a boat. Small ships, big ships, right? Um, some of them were very large dowels, which are very popular in the Middle East and in and, and Asia and stuff. And they're the most popular. But yeah, he had a, a variety of boats that, you know, at the time, he didn't know what he was doing with them. So there were definitely moments uh, where, you know, keeping track of these things and knowing what they were up to was definitely important. But I wish I could say that, oh, yeah, it all led to us finding him in Pakistan. <laughs> put, put your name to it. Just claim it. <laughs> Because you're essentially like in that role, you you're a covert operative, right? How, how is that different from being a seal? Like, what what's the what are the big changes for you when you're actually doing your job? Yeah, so I, I, I try to do the comparison. It's operator versus operative. You know, an operator is what most people think of: body armor, night vision, kicking in doors, and you know, killing bad guys. Right? Um, an operative is more you know, could be business casual, traveling, normal airlines, and expected to do a lot of the same type of, have the same kind of outcomes, but doing it in a, a more creative way is probably the best way to put it. Mm. And so it's not so much SEAL specific. It's, it's more just a, a greater community that uh, you can 
do these kinds of missions for? And so played a, played a little role in, in, in some of that stuff. And like I said before, it was uh, super cool. I mean, it's the, it's the kind of, it's the kind of thing where you're like, huh, I can't believe I'm getting a chance to do this. And in mm. fact, I can't believe they're letting me do this. <laughs> <laughs> Are they crazy? <laughs> you could probably tell me the story about when you were pretending to be a Danish wildlife researcher in Somalia, couldn't you? <laughs> the, the Danish veterinarian story, yeah. Well, first, I wasn't pretending to be that. It was, I trusted a local. The lo- I, was, I was basically helping out the locals. And I did like this, uh, this exercise or this like graded scenario. And so me and my contact were walking around this very small village. And we were going in and out of all these different stores. And while we're going in and out of the, this open air market and different souks and, and different stuff, he was introducing, and he, you know, I didn't speak the language, so that's, that's on me. <laughs> but he was introducing me as a Danish veterinarian to everyone. Oh, this is, he's a Danish veterinarian. Oh, he's a Danish veterinarian, blah, blah, blah. If I would have known, I would have never let anyone come up with this story about me, right? It's just, that's bad tradecraft. But he did it. And I didn't know uh, until we got about halfway into this thing. And I'm like, hey, what, what is it? I hear the same thing. You know, when you hear a language, you can hear the same exact things, you know. But so I'm like, what is it that you're saying at, at every location? He's like, oh, I'm just telling him you're a, you're a Danish you know, veterinarian. And I'm like, why? And he's like, yeah, because, you know, everyone loves the Danes. And I'm like, uh, OK, let's not do that anymore, you know, kind of thing. And so we carry on and the day is done. And that night I'm staying at like what would be equivalent to like a, uh, a motel, if you will, kind of thing, but it's not, it's horrible. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's hashtag shithole, right? That's, right. that's where I'm staying. I get a call on the satellite phone. It's basically like, get out of there as soon as you can. And so, you know, you're in these situations, you always have a plan, right? An escape plan, if you will to egress and, and get out of country or across a border, whatever it takes to get yourself out of harm's way. So uh, basically executed that plan. And it wasn't until I, you know, got on a plane that picked me up in the middle of nowhere. And I asked like, what the hell is going on? And they're like, you know, basically you had a mob of people headed your way because there's been an incident, an international incident involving a Danish uh, illustrator who uh, drew Muhammad in a very vulgar way to the Muslims. I, I think the, the actual illustration, he was half human, half dog or something. I can't remember. But anyway, I think everybody's heard about this, you know, and it didn't help because this is like part of the Arab Spring, right? It yeah. was just like, you know, the whole Middle East was on fire with protests and violence. And Was that part you know, of the, the Paris attacks? Was that the same? Yes. The place where the, the Danish illustrator worked, right? Yeah, well, the Danish illustrator's stuff was published in right. the, that French newspaper that's super popular. Man, it's been forever. I can't believe it's, I can't remember how. I used to be able to tell you the whole, all the details, but yeah, whatever that newspaper is, everybody's heard of it, but it was published in there. And then, you know, they tried to assassinate the illustrator. I think he's, you know, three or four different times. And then they attacked the news building for publishing it. I mean, it, it created a hailstorm of uh, issues, but yeah, it almost got me killed being the, oh, everybody loves Dane's story. Yeah. How close were you? How close was the mob to, to getting to you? They were, they were coming down the street. And this is, a, this is a small town, but even small town, I mean, that's a lot of people. You know, you're not going to win that fight regardless. And it's not like I was, uh, I was equipped to fight, you know. In those situations, you, uh, you just make sure you disappear. After that, you started doing some like testing security systems there's some great stories in this we you, <laughs> we'll talk about the first one uh, and then the second one's quite entertaining as well you, you were talk me through the situation so you're hired by companies to basically see if you can infiltrate their security systems to basically stress test them to see how to find the weak points so that they can fix them right that's right yeah it's um it's called red teaming you have red hatting, you hear the term red hats, and that's where you test cyber networks and make sure that there's no vulnerabilities. So you basically hire ethical hackers to try and hack into a network. Red teaming is the physical 
test, right? Trying to break into uh, a company when, and there's no rules, right? So the, usually the clients will dictate how they want it done. You want to be, there's really two choices. You want us to attack you as if we're a foreign intel service, you know, or do you want us to attack you as if we're criminals? Obviously, if you're a foreign intel service, that's a higher level of sophistication and equipment and, and technology that, that we bring to bear. And if you want us to attack as a criminal, well, then now you're using more creative, kind of more barbaric ways that are just still, still very effective. Both ways work, but they test different things. So anyway, yeah, we, I mean, gosh, I've done so many of them. You know, I have a company called Escape the Wolf and that, you know, that's one of the things we do is red teaming and red hatting simultaneously. So we will hit their network at two o'clock in the morning, which will make everybody come to work. A good company, you know, the CTOs and all CIOs and everybody's involved in technology and their network cyber side will come into work. And then we sometimes leverage the cyber guys when they come in because they turn off security systems and stuff. And then we can go in. There's a lot of creative ways, basically, yeah. right? And so we would uh, we would exploit every uh, venue we could. And then we'd also exploit like the obvious. If I've got my phone up to my ear and I've got my Starbucks in my hand and in the middle of the day, I'm approaching a door and let's say it's access controlled, but I'm right behind an employee who has access. That employee every single time will think I'm on the phone, not want to interrupt me. They know that my other hand has coffee in it. And then just hold the door open for me. And right on in, I walk, just acting like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm here now, so I'm about to get in the elevators. Okay, yep, okay, see you up there, bye, click, right? Now I'm already in the building, go straight to the stairwells, never the elevators, go to the stairwells all the way to the top floor, and then you just hang out there until nighttime, right? Then... What happens with these big corporations, and I don't care if you're U.S. or international, but all the employees leave and then they set the alarm system. And now you've got the whole night to be in there doing whatever you want, right? So you always attack the CEO or the chairman's office. Definitely go down and see what we can do with the cyber guys. Then you'll go into all the, the, the most vulnerable aspect of a company isn't the executives. It's all of their assistants right? All these big guys, the CEO and the CFO, they all have, some of them have four assistants, right? right. So then you, go, you just go to their desks and they have everything you need on the CEO, right? They have it all right there, organized, nice and neat. I remember we had, uh, we went into one, one of the assistants in one of her drawers had the chairman's entire family, of passports, uh, social security cards. <laughs> I mean, everything was, and you talk about like the, on the, you know, the identity fraud side of the house, it was a gold mine. This was a multi-billion dollar company that owned 22 other multi-billion dollar companies, right? And this was the chairman's office and his assistant. He had four assistants and you could tell as we got into each desk, one assistant strictly covered down on the family and travel and everything they had going on. Right. The other assistant focused on all of the uh, contracts that the company had going that this, that the chairman needed to see on the chairman's desk. Now this was the best on the chairman's desk was a three ring binder. Okay. On the cover, it said this week's updates. Right. And when you open it up, there was a tab. 22 tabs for all 22 subsidiaries. And when you flip to each tab, it had all their major deals that were that they were in the middle of at that point in time for each of those companies. Make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, when you talk about intellectual property or competitive intelligence, if I were working for the competitor, I would have been able to put that company out of business that day because I would have known every single thing that they were working on at that point in time. I mean, Jesus. Uh, but anyway, that's, it's, that's a long story, but that's the kind of vulnerabilities that we were looking for or yeah. go after. Sometimes we just get lucky and stumble upon the stuff. And sometimes uh, it requires uh, a little bit of extra personal work on uh, some of the employees, <laughs> right? 
Yeah, yeah. So that story. Uh, so data farms, data farms, data farms, right? So is that in Silicon Valley? Yeah, data, a data farm. Some of them are national assets, right? And for those that don't know what a data farm is, you can Google it. But it's basically imagine a warehouse full of servers, and then imagine there's twenty of those warehouses, and then around those warehouses is a perimeter of barbed wire. And then around that perimeter of barbed wire is another perimeter of barbed wire. And then there's a roving patrol with guns, right? I mean, this is a private entity, but because it's so important to not just national infrastructure, global infrastructure, right? Because everything is flowing through these things. So if it goes down, essentially, we're at that point in time, cyber would go down with it. Uh, we know how important that is. But anyway, it was so heavily guarded. There was no way, you know, you're talking fence lines that had pressure sensors, you know, from 20 feet out. Um, so if you just walked near the fence line, they would know which zone you were in and somebody was going to come out there. The roving patrol had vehicles that would drive in between the two fence lines on a regular basis. I mean, it was the, it was more locked down than any U S base I've ever been on. It was incredible. And you could tell the guys manning the guns definitely would, would shoot you and ask questions later. Right. They meant business. Um, so we were like, okay, how are we going to get in here? <laughs> you know, we were hired to get in there. Yeah. So we, give ourselves a window. It's not like you can hang out for a month and get in. Uh, any bad guy that hangs out long enough will figure out a way in. That's the reality, no matter what. But we give ourselves 96 hours, you know? So if we can't figure it out in 96 hours, then you're probably doing pretty good security-wise because we're trained and we've been doing it for a long time. Um, so long story short, we notice who's coming and going, process of elimination, couple of the females, uh, we got lucky. They went to a bar and then, you know, we ended up, you know, schmoozing them and talking with them and basically, you know, what's called Romeo. You have honeypots and you have Romeos. A honeypot is when a foreign intel service uses females to try and trick guys, you know, into whatever. And then, you know, those guys will let down their guard and then the honeypot will take advantage of them in some form or fashion. Usually it's you know, use a thumb drive and take something off their laptop when they're passed out in their hotel room. A Romeo is the opposite. It's when a male, you know, basically sweethearts females that uh, have information or have access to something. So we Romeoed the females and then eventually to the point where in the middle of the night from her place, I uh, got into the trunk of her car while she was still asleep that night, right? <laughs> As you do. Then when she woke up and got ready for the morning, and I probably got into the trunk way too early because, man, I, I was like, man, is this woman ever going to go to work? Because it seemed like I was in there forever. And then eventually she gets in the car and, and goes to work. Once again, creativity. I was basically taken straight in to the target. Uh, leveraging an unwitting employee. Bad guys are very creative. Yeah. So if you're going to get in, they will. Um, so you just have to be very conscious of that kind of thing. But it was, uh, you know, it was, it was fun because that was going to be the first red teaming. We thought we weren't going to win. We, we, we have won against every target we'd ever gone against. Really? Yeah. And that was the first one we were like, Oh, no chance, no chance. Right. And that was at, that was at like the last day, like our 96 hour window was almost up when that worked out the way it did. And so we were like, all right, we got it. Well, that pretty much does it for the, for the stories and the yarns that we've got, Clint, but you've got a cool series of books that are a hundred deadly skills. You want to talk us through what that's about? Yeah. hundred deadly skills is a, is a basically a four book series at this point. The first book has a yellow cover and it was the most popular it hit the New York Times list and uh, sat there for like eight months. Crazy. Who would have thought? But basically, it gives you kind of covert, clandestine ways to watch your own back. Little tricks to uh, have an edge against bad guys. Um, the second book uh, is 100 Daily Skills Survival Edition. And it's got a green cover. And it basically gives you, uh, it's like a playbook that you can leverage when you talk about all the different kinds of crisis, you know, active shooter and natural disaster and 
and, and other and other skills you can use against bad guys. And then the third book, the most current, which has a black cover, is Combat Edition. And it, it literally gives you hand-to-hand -hand fighting skills, knife skills, pistol, rifle. It even has some crazy skills in it that I got from the first American Ninja. You know, outlaw motorcycle gang uh, skills are in there. What I did is I just went around and talked to all the... Uh, Chuck Norris. Yeah, badasses, right? All the badasses I could find and interview them and say, all right, give me your top five kind of go-to skills that the average person could benefit from. And, and then all those skills combined together make up 100 Deadly Skills Combat Edition. Awesome. Uh, the fourth one is a puzzle book because I feel like... A puzzle book gonna, after those... after the, What a lead up to a puzzle book. It sounds crazy. But those four give you skills. The puzzle book actually increases your memory and retention capability um, because everybody wants to be kind of this Jason Bourne and be able to take in the environment, situational awareness, the license plate, the guy that weighs 220 at the bar and can handle himself well and probably has a gun in the cab of his truck. And I know that I can run a half mile and, you know, whatever, four seconds or four minutes flat, blah, blah, blah. You remember that whole scene? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... I'm giving people all these, these, these physical skills. And I was like, well, how do we get the brain? Cause that's the most important part. Uh, and so there is still just a very few puzzle makers in the world. One of them lives right there over in England, in London. Most puzzles these days are computer generated, but this one we created human generated puzzles that hundred percent work on cognitive issues, situational awareness, memory and retention it actually turned out pretty cool in, a, in calling it a puzzle book kind of devalues it but because it's really if you got all the skills and you've got your brain tuned up you're pretty squared away ready to deal with anything person and let's face it the brain is the most important aspect of the whole thing absolutely so, there you go amazing well, well best of luck with those books and, and we can get them on amazon as well and you've got a podcast as well i can't let you go without a quick mention of your podcast <laughs> yeah uh, can you survive this podcast is the podcast and it's a uh, it's uh, I interview interesting people just like you do the difference is, is I have a little survival game at the end uh, where I put the person into a scenario uh, with a decision tree of questions to see if they survive oh the, the crisis that I put them in can you put me in one of those situations or is it take, does it take quite a while to go through it no yeah we can do it okay um, let's have a go let's have a go let's have a go all right so you're at a local pub mm -hmm. at, in fact you're at your favorite pub okay and uh, you're by yourself you're sitting at the bar and you've got uh you're back to the door um which is unfortunate because just as you turn around a bad guy comes through the door you're in England, so he doesn't have a gun, but he's got a huge butcher knife mm. and he just starts stabbing people. Do you A, run for the back exit or B, run towards danger and try and end this situation? I think what I would do, I mean, I've never been in this situation before and I don't want to sound like I'm, <laughs> I'd be a hero. I would throw my pint glass at him and charge at him with my stool that I'm sitting on. Yeah. So because we're just, I'm on the fly giving you an example, both answers are correct. I mean, there is no right or wrong on that one because it's all based on your level of capability, right? I would love it if everybody said, yes, charge the bad guy in the situation as soon as possible, even if I get stabbed in the process, right? But it's also correct to say, hey, increase, increase distance from the problem, which increases survivability um, and get yourself out of harm's way. I think the most important aspect, and this is what you learn from the show, is you should always think about what is it you're really, truly capable of. And if you have the courage, but not the skills, then go get the skills, right? If you're one of those guys and you're like, I know that I would do something about that, well, then go get the skills so that you can do it successfully. Because the last thing you want to be is a statistic and end mm. up on the floor bleeding out, right? And if you don't have the skills, or and you don't have the courage, then increasing distance and finding a way out might be, you know, the other option and let law enforcement or someone else do the dirty work. But, you know, we, we basically take each person and, and put them in the position where some of the answers are both right. Sometimes the answers are both wrong. <laughs> so yeah. the goal, though, 
is through discussion to get the listener thinking about what they would do or just, hey, oh, I need to go brush up on that skill or, oh, that was a good point. I'll remember that if it ever happens to me, you know, so that's kind of how it goes. I think the reality is I'd probably freeze and not know what the fuck to do. <laughs> Clint, thank you so much for coming on the show, mate. It's been a, it's been a pleasure and it's been some great stories and some great advice in there as well. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me, buddy. I look forward to uh, pushing this out when the time comes. So let me know. And thank you very much for listening. And if you like this episode, please make sure you give us a review on whatever platform you get your podcast on and give it a share on social media. We'll be back again next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.